Monday, May 4th, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. May the 4th be with you on this day of days. And if you're still locked into your home, at least it's on a day dedicated to entertainment that crosses three trilogies, a couple of TV series, books, video games, and so much more. So enjoy. A couple ratings this week. Also got two reviews. A first one is from Bonnie Rat. Hope that's a play on Bonnie Rate. Maybe it is Bonnie Rate. Um, love the names you all make up, by the way. Uh, Comment simply says five stars outstanding. Bonnie, thank you for your support. And Bonnie goes to show that you don't have to write a novel to help us. And we appreciate it. Next one is from Ryan Bear, Sergeant USMC veteran. Five stars, awesome information. I consider myself well-versed in VA benefits, but through this podcast, I'm getting a lot of information on care and benefits I am new to. Well done. I really appreciate this medium, and I hope the VA will continue to support this podcast. Outstanding professional resource. Ryan, thank you for your support, and I'm glad the info that we're providing here on the podcast is actually helpful. Uh, I think I've expressed before that sharing the news releases and stuff like that, I didn't know if people would like it. Uh, It's almost like giving you the veggies before the dessert, before the interview uh, sort of thing. But I'm glad that you and others have told me that it helps you in your VA journey. And I hope the VA continues to support this podcast, too, because (laughs) my gig depends on it. Uh, Again, thank you to all who have reviewed, rated, and subscribed this week. And if you're playing this from the player on the blog on blogs.va.gov, your preferred podcasting app of choice is right on the player. You can click subscribe right on the player and subscribe from there. Those ratings and reviews and subs go a long way into pushing this info in the Apple Podcast algorithms so this podcast and the info and the stories in it can get in front of even more veterans. All right, news release time. First one says, for immediate release, VA hiring jumps 37% in the fight against COVID-19. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs has significantly increased hiring between March 29th to April 11th, a surge that will continue in the coming weeks as VA works to protect patients from coronavirus, otherwise known as COVID-19. During the time frame from March 29th to April 11th, VA hired over 3,100 new staff members, of which just over 950 are registered nurses, a 37.7% increase from the prior two-week period. This is the effect of a recently launched national hiring campaign to attract nurses, respiratory therapists, anesthesiologists, housekeepers, supply technicians, and other medical and related professionals to work in its facilities across the country. Many of VA's new hires came from the healthcare systems that have seen temporary layoffs due to COVID-19. VA has also invited retired healthcare workers to work for VA and waived salary restrictions that would normally apply to those potential employees. For more information on the campaign, visit vacareers.va.gov. All right, next one says, for immediate release, VA health app now available to veterans across all mobile and web platforms. Through public-private partnerships with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs since early April, all veterans have been able to securely connect to their health care data online. Online veteran health care records, first only available on the iOS operating systems, are now also accessible on Android mobile devices and web applications. 
iBlueButton and MyLinks are free health information exchange apps providing veterans the ability to securely access, manage, and interact with their health information. They also make it easier for veterans to set and achieve healthcare goals regardless of their device. A veteran must first authorize access to their healthcare information using a VA-approved authentication method before an app can access their data. At any time, the veteran can revoke the privileges they've granted to these apps through their account settings on VA.gov. iBlueButton, which makes critical healthcare information readily available to the veteran, has been connected to VA's My Healthy Vet BlueButton since 2010. With this app, veterans can generate and organize medical history from both VA and Medicare. In December 2019, the iBlueButton applications used the new VA Health API to create a new feature that organizes and visualizes a veteran's lab values. MyLinks enables patients and caregivers to view and share aggregated health records, manage multiple family records, and store and share other important documents and images. Since January, MyLinks has leveraged the VA Health API to help veterans and their caregivers securely share health information across the veterans care team network of providers. This app allows VA application programming interfaces, again, APIs, to be available for developer use through the Lighthouse Developer Portal. Lighthouse is an API platform that gives developers secure access to VA data they may need to build helpful tools and services for veterans. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of S6 stuff in there that I don't, I don't understand. But maybe you do. Maybe you're an S6 guy and you, you understand all that. It's secure. And finally, we have a joint statement from the DHS and VA on continued collaboration throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. It says, in a whole-of-government effort, Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Veterans Affairs have worked very closely together throughout the coronavirus pandemic to bring critical medical supplies to our nation's heroes. While the supply and demand for PPE during the crisis is greater than ever before, the federal government has worked with governmental and private sector partners to secure what VA needs. In support of our nation's veterans, FEMA has coordinated shipments of more than 4.3 million various types of respirator masks, 1 million facial and surgical masks, 1.5 million gloves, and 14,000 face shields to VA facilities across the country. An additional 1 million facial surgical masks are shipping this week. Additionally, working in close partnership with FEMA, the VA has made 1,500 acute and intensive care hospital beds across the nation available to non-veteran patients if necessary. VA is helping 38 states, providing support to state veterans' homes and private nursing homes. So there's that. All right. So this week's guest is a 2002 graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. He went on to serve three combat tours with the 1st CAV and the 3rd Special Forces Group. After his third deployment, he founded Team RWB, and their mission is to enrich the lives of veterans by connecting them to their community through physical and social activity. He was also their first executive director. Then he took a brief hiatus to start a couple of other nonprofits, write a book titled Lead Yourself First, and he has recently returned to the position of executive director for Team RWB in 2019. Although he's out of active duty, he's still in the Army Reserves, and is an assistant professor at West Point. He is Army veteran Mike Irwin. Enjoy. First of all, congrats on on child number five. Yeah, thank you. Um, boy or girl? Uh, girl. girl? Girl. So yeah, so she was 
born December 14th, so still getting used to the whole system now with another one. So it's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another one. <laughs> um, name? Mike Irwin. No, 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 oh. no. Your baby's Sorry. name. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. No worries. You're fine. You're fine. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, yeah. Her name is Zelly. Her so. name Zelly? Yep. So uh, spell it for me. Z-E-L-I-E. So, okay. yeah. Zelly. Yeah, Zelly Irene Irwin. Is there, a, is there a story behind that name? A little bit. So um, so our daughter, one of our daughters is named Therese after St. Therese uh, or St. Therese de Lasso. And so her mom was named Zelly. So that's where the inspiration comes behind the name. Very good. Yeah. How do you raise a family in North Carolina yet be a professor at West Point? So That's, I mean, I thought yeah. in DC my commute was bad. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so so it's the reserves. Um, so yeah, so I was uh, when I was on active duty there from 2011 to 14. I was there as a major, but yeah, now I'm still a lieutenant colonel in, in the reserves. But I only go back up there for about a three to four week period in the summer in June July period. Okay, so, so, so it's yeah. uh, like an adjunct. Kind of more kinda, or less, yeah, okay, Roger, exactly. Roger. So, I'm still an assistant professor, but I only go up there, you know, again for this essentially summer school. Very good, very good, Mike. We're going to ask the same question that we ask every every guest uh, right off the bat Why did you decide to join the military in the first place? Jeez, yeah. So, going back to when I was a little kid, I would remember watching army commercials, you know, be all that you can be, and thought those were pretty awesome. And, you know, I had not given a whole lot of thought to going into the military. And I remember my sophomore year in high school, my mom called me from work one day and said, Hey, I saw, saw some brochure about West Point. And I know you've always had a lot of respect for the military. Have you ever thought about seeing about going to West Point? Mm. And, I said, no, not really, um, but let's go check it out. You know, so I was at that very open and exploratory phase. So, you know, Where'd my, you grow up? Uh, Syracuse, New York. Okay. Yep. So so only a couple, you know, three hours, three and a half hours up the road. You know, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. So, you know, D-Day plus one. Um, you know, my dad was a police officer. My uh, other grandfather was a firefighter. So a lot of service in the DNA of the family. Roger. And so I went down there and just once you know, just one visit, I walked away from that place spellbound about the challenge that it was, but also the opportunity to grow as a person and as a leader. And then I was very attracted to the concept of serving, right? And serving the country. And this was obviously a very different time post Persian Gulf. And, you know, uh, you know, I, when I went to West Point, I thought, you know, the most dangerous place I might go would be Bosnia or, you know, South Korea, you know, in the DMZ. So looking back at it, you know, it, my whole entire you know, life has un- that has unfolded since then is obviously, you know, um, been very different, you know, due to September 11th, 2001. But uh, but yeah, going there to visit was absolutely spellbound by how challenging the military was and uh, couldn't walk away from that kind of a challenge. You graduated from West Point. In- Oh, two, correct? Dead. Yep. So you were going to school on 9-11 Absolutely. at West Point. What was that like? Yeah, that was that was crazy. Um, so first of all, yeah, class of 2002. So we were the bicentennial class. So, you know, we, you know, West Point was founded in 1802. So we, there's all kinds of celebrations and things like that that they were preparing for. For me, actually, I was in New York City the night before on September 10th. I remember driving over the George Washington Bridge and looking to the south and seeing the Twin Towers illuminated at night. Oh and yeah, I mean, so it came back, you know, because uh, you had to be back before tap. So I had to get back by around 11 o'clock at night. And, um, and of course, everything changed. Uh, but yeah, the place went on lockdown. Of course, the biggest concern in the short term 
was that there might be an attack on West Point. Sure. And that, you know, with terrorism, that they might want to attack not just from a symbolic standpoint, but also, you know, to put a dent in our nation's, you know, training, training capability. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was a pretty crazy experience. So the place was on lockdown, but life went on. Um, you know, we did have some of our classmates there that lost, you know, one of my good friends, Joe Quinn, lost his brother. There was others. And you know, then, of course, the Pentagon attack. And so there was a fair number of cadets who had, you know, a mom or a dad that was stationed in the Pentagon. So there was a lot of that actual concern. But life kept on going. Right. And then yeah. the intensity ramped up when we realized what was going to happen. When we knew uh, more more about Al Qaeda and, you know, the training camps in Afghanistan and just all the talk about that, we knew like, wow, for the first three years of our time here, it was it wasn't <laughs> it was not, you know, laid back by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it was not the same level of intensity that we saw ramped up when we realized like, oh geez, we're gonna graduate on June first, two thousand and two. There's a good chance that we'll be, you know, in combat within, you know, eight to twelve months. Different level of focus. Very. Yeah. Very. You say you were you were from Syracuse, right? Yep. Born and raised. Uh, Marine Corps sent me to Syracuse. Okay. Uh, yeah, they sent me to, just to be a student for uh, for a year. Nice. Up at the university, so I got I got me some some dinosaur barbecue. Oh, you dinosaur know, barbecue. of course, you know what was that? And then there's that hot dog place up north. Uh, Hoffins. Hoffins. Hides. Hides Hoffins. Yep. yep. Hides. Um, yeah, a lot of good, a lot of good memories up in Syracuse. Uh, but before I joined the Marine Corps, I almost joined. And this is like one of those stories I almost joined. If I was going to join the Army, and I joined in '03. So probably a year, uh, you know, almost a year after you, after you you graduate from West Point, uh, Calf Scout had a very very um, high bonus to enlistment. Mm-hmm. So yep. you know, I noticed in your bio, first Cav, third Special Forces group, but the first Cav jumped out at me because I almost did it. I almost mm-hmm. had thirty thousand for an eighteen year old was was yep. a lot of money yep. from from a kid from Home Tulips, Washington. Um, while you were in, give me either a a best friend or a greatest mentor. Yeah. You know, I think like we all experience in the military, right? There's some of like the best of times and the worst of times, right? You, you know, I think we've all got some incredible leaders and some leaders that are not so good, right? We see excellent and poor leadership models. And you can learn from both. Absolutely. And yeah. you, you absolutely learn from both. And oh, by the way, who's to say that, you know, you know even the best of leaders, they have their mistakes and, and they have their tough times. But, you know, for me, I'd have to say uh, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel, now active duty, still Lieutenant General Jim Rainey, he was my battalion commander uh, in 2004-2005 uh, on that Iraq deployment, battles in Jaff and Fallujah. He came in, actually, uh, our commander at the time and the command sergeant major were both relieved okay. due to uh, command climate uh, issues in Afghanistan in April of 2004. And so then Lieutenant Colonel Rainey came down from the brigade staff, and he not only had the challenge in front of him of getting to know everybody for the first time in a combat zone. But our base at Camp Taji was under indirect fire attack quite frequently. Oh, wow. Uh, and so it was a lot of stress at the base. And then quickly he had to figure out how we were going to put pressure on the insurgency to at least give some breathing room because we had uh, the division's uh, helicopter assets were at Taji, which is why they kept on trying to rocket it and, and mortar it. And so he had to figure out how he was going to do that then he also had to figure out, you know, working with the 39th National Guard Brigade. So our battalion was actually assigned to, for the first time, I believe, in history, that an active duty battalion was assigned to and directly worked for a National Guard Brigade. And so he had all those things going on. Interesting. It was. It was fascinating to kind of like figure out how to navigate that. And coupled with the fact that he came into an environment where the leaders were 
a product of you know that poor command climate. I had to rebuild that too. I had to rebuild and all this like so you can imagine all this going on real time, and so you know then we went on to Najaf in support of the 11th Mu down in August of 2004, and just seeing him in action and how he built relationships with people, how he challenged people to work hard, how he gave them the individual attention, uh, sometimes in a joking kind of way, but he did all these great things that really showed what's necessary under a challenging set of circumstances to transform the culture and go from ineffective and concerned to hard charging and let's get after it. And uh, so I would have to say he's the first person that jumps to my mind. He actually promoted me in the Pentagon when he was a a two-star general uh, to Lieutenant, he promoted me to Lieutenant Colonel here a few years ago. And so he's awesome. Very good. That's, that's awesome. Um, still in the reserves, like you said, but you left active duty. When was that? And why did you decide to get out? Yeah. So I, I transitioned in the summer of 2015 and, you know, part of it was, you know, I, when I graduated from West Point, you, part of the payback, you know, for your education is you definitely owe five years with three, three years in the reserves. And honestly, when I graduated or when I was getting ready to graduate before to start my senior year before 9-11, I definitely thought, hey, I'm doing my five years and then moving on to something else. And then 9-11 took place. And so that kind of like put all my analysis and thinking on freeze. Sure. And then I went out to the Army. And when I was out there, I mean, it was, you know, we were preparing. We were training hard. We deployed for a full year. I mean, being gone for six months, not so bad. Nine months getting there, but you're a year, a full calendar year. I mean, you miss everything, you know? Um, yeah. And and so that started to, to put a strain on, you know, my thought process because I knew we would, there was going to be more deployments in the future. Yeah. And so, you know, what it boiled down to is I, I thought that I was going to get out, you know, again, maybe after five, six years. And I ended up staying in what amounted for 13 years. Uh, I was selected to go back to grad school and then to go to West Point and teach. And so I was part of this five-year program. And it was in 2010 while I was in graduate school. So I was eight years in my service that I founded Team Red, White, and Blue. What was the th- So you were still in when, when this happened, mm-hmm. when you founded it? Absolutely. The- yeah, I was, I was an active duty captain, soon to be major when I founded it. And what's really interesting about that is that it was my experience in Team Red, White, and Blue that essentially gave me the clarity to know that I can serve the nation in other ways. And it's not just being in the military or on active duty that you can serve, but you can also do so through nonprofits, et cetera. So it was really that. And I got very excited about entrepreneurship. I never really thought much about it. I'd read a couple of articles about what does it mean to be an entrepreneur. For the first two years after founding Team Red, White, and Blue, I didn't even think of myself as an entrepreneur. I just was like an army guy just creating and, and building and doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you know, now I totally, I see myself as part of my identity as I'm an entrepreneur and especially a social entrepreneur working on building nonprofits to make our communities and our country better. And yeah, so that, that really was what led me to that decision to move on was that experience with team red, white and blue is like, wow, I really enjoyed the autonomy of being able to make a decision today and then see the change tomorrow yeah. right? versus working in the military or other large companies or organizations where very often that change might take months, if not years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for those that have never heard about Team Red, White, and Blue, what's the mission and the purpose of Team Red, White, and Blue? So our mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans. And you know, we primarily do that through physical activity, also some social activity, some volunteer opportunities, but it's primarily through the physical activity. When you think about that word enrich, uh, it was actually part of our founding mission statement back in 2010. And we got some pro bono help thinking about the organization and, and 
kept on people kept on pushing. I'm like, well, what does that word enrich mean? We did a lot of research over the past five, six years to really understand what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Because if that's our mission and, we're, and we want to deliver on it, then we need to know what it is. <laughs> and what we found yeah. is, you know, that enrich means, in our case, it's health, people, and purpose. So we want to help veterans have better physical health, better mental health. We want to help them to uh, build strong relationships in their lives post-military. And it's a very amorphous or very sort of uh, ambiguous thing, right? But with this idea of purpose, like what is a sense of purpose? You can't like look at it or see it like you can your weight or your mood, right? Um, yeah. But this idea of sense of purpose. So health, people, purpose. That's really what we're trying to do for veterans. And the way we primarily do that is by challenging them to be active physically and then draw the mental, the physical, and the emotional benefits that come from that. Got you. The previous host, Tim Lawson, uh, he was talking about Team Red, White, Blue, and that's how I first discovered it. I found out I actually there's a running group near near where I, I, I'm living now in Stafford. How does how does one even start by getting involved with Team Red, White, and yeah. Blue? Yeah. So. The answer used to be go to our website and sign up. It's now a lot easier. Go to the app store and download the Team RWB app and install it. So when you do that, okay. you install, it, it has you create a profile. Part of that profile is to, you know, hey, what service were you in? How many years were you in? Where did you deploy to, right? Basic sort of military demographics. Not too invasive. Just want to get like the basic idea of who you are. Sure. Um, so that we can eventually provide better opportunities for you and better serve you. Uh, and then part of that is then to go through this process where then you sign up for and you get a shirt, right? So we send you a team red, white, and blue, red athletic shirt. Say, hey, welcome to the team. This is who we are. But it is that easy. And of course, we all, I honestly don't know any adult today who doesn't have a smartphone. I'm sure there's a few. Um, but, you know. <laughs> My father. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, not many, right? There are the handful. But, yeah. Yeah. So you download, you know, from right from your smartphone, you download the app and you install it. And then it's pretty awesome. What you can do is you can... Um, Search by 25 miles, within 50 miles, or 100 miles of where I'm at. And what are you searching for? Uh, any physical activity. So you, you can uh, segment it by saying, hey, I'm interested in running and hiking, or rucking uh, and cycling, or yoga and CrossFit, like whatever. You can choose what kind of physical activity events you're interested in, and then query our database, uh, again, 25, 50, or, or 100 miles away, and it will let you know, hey, these are all of the events that Team Red, White, and Blue chapters are putting on within your area. Oh, wow. Um, but beyond that is, and what we found is that increasingly in the world, I call it the Amazon effect, right? But when it's something is not convenient for somebody in terms of time and or location, then like people often just opt out. Yeah, they're moving right? on. Yeah, like I got, you know, I got to find something more convenient. So you think about that and just how Amazon has, has changed how we think about shopping. And so for us, we've got a lot of virtual challenges. And this is definitely a trend in the fitness space, but what's different about Team Red, White, and Blue is really the community aspect. And so in January, we had something called Eagle Take Flight. And so the challenge was, hey, every day, log into the app, right? Check in, say, hey, I'm here and I'm doing something physical today. It might be a half a mile, it might be you know, a run, it might be a CrossFit session or yoga, whatever it might be, Yeah. right? Uh, and then throughout the year, we have these different challenges like the 1776 challenge, the Mount Everest climber challenge. Um, the Taji 100 challenge right now going on in February is run hundred miles or walk or hike or ruck 100 miles in the month of February. So you have to do about three and a half to a little under four miles per day, right? But if you do that, then you get this challenge going of, Hey, I did hundred miles, you know, in February. So it's really trying to challenge veterans to harness the power of physical activity in their lives and challenging them with both virtual and in real life opportunities. So almost like uh, individual and group activity. Cause you guys do group stuff too, right? Like totally. Our- 
Absolutely. Oh, okay. So a lot of it is individual. So even if you are going to do something like a marathon or train it for something really big, like a Spartan race, yeah, you have to train for it. And yeah. you're not going to be able to do all that training with other people all the time. It's just, you know, I mean, even people who like live right next door to their best friends who they train with, like life's going to get in the way, like kids going to get sick or I'm going to be traveling for work or whatever it is. So the question really is, how do you, you know, build that training? So we do have the individual opportunities, but yes, our bread and butter absolutely is that shared suffering, that shared camaraderie that comes with the in-person. Think of your platoon runs. Think of when you're in the military, like, you know, again, when you stuck together, right, you pushed each other. You didn't let someone fall out, right? That kind of mindset. We're capturing that aspect of the military experience and we're bringing it forward into team red, white, and blue. Now, mind you, like a lot of us who are in the military, right, didn't enjoy running, didn't enjoy doing the physical fitness while we were on active duty. Um, and so because of that, what we often see in veterans is they will, when they, when they leave active duty or guarded reserves, right. They kind of check that at the door and they say, you know, I'm done with this organized physical activity stuff. Completely you know? drop the pack. Totally. And so like <laughs> I say all the time, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, like, yes, I get it that the organized mandatory stretching in the one hour early in the morning when you're tired, it doesn't have to be that way, right? You can, you can do it in you know, uh, over lunch, you can do it like late in the afternoon or you know, when it's freezing cold out, do it, wait, wait, you know, until uh, later in the day, but team red, white, and blue events take place at all different opportunities. And oh, by the way, the military may do a lot of like calisthenics, right? Pushups, sit-ups, uh, running. Well, maybe you like CrossFit, maybe you like yoga, maybe you like rock climbing or there's, there's a countless amounts of physical activities that you can do. And so the challenge really from us as an organization to veterans is find something physical that you like right? Or that you're willing to commit the process to, because when you do that, right, you reap all these benefits. We all know it. The research is super clear. Oh yeah. You know? And so like how you, you, <laughs> those you know, in shape live longer, live longer, happier, like better connected. Like the list goes on of all the things you do, but I get it. It's hard to like, be like, Oh, I'm so pumped up to go do PT today. Cause in the military, we were conditioned right from a, you know, it's early in the morning. I don't know hardly anyone who was like all pumped up in the morning, right? It was you're tired, uh, sometimes hungover. That, that one, know? that one annoying guy. Yeah, there's always the one annoying guy. In oh, the morning. there is. That, yeah. is, that, is, that, is, that is true. Right? <laughs> come on, guys, let's go. And you're yeah. like, shut. Come on, man, oh. we're, we're tired. <laughs> right? So like, like that's the military. I think you know, in that part of it, it's conditioned a lot of people to kind of think of it as being like, oh, this is not fun. This sucks. You know, and and we want to say like, look, there's a whole bunch of activities, and our chapters put on all these different kinds of events that veterans can join our organization and plug into. Yeah, I didn't know there was an app. That's that I just I've seen you guys on Twitter a couple of times. Tim talked about you guys. Uh so that's that's awesome. Um Mike, you founded Team RWB in in twenty eleven while you were still in. You were the executive director until twenty thirteen. And we've interviewed or Tim did before he left, he interviewed JJ Piner, the current executive director. So if you're interested in that interview, go ahead and check that out in the archives. Um and you actually chaired, but you and you still chaired the board up until 2016. I don't think I've ever met someone that has left, basically a nonprofit that they birthed, especially something yeah. as successful as in the veteran community as Team RWB. Why leave? Yeah. So a couple of things. So one, I, so I never left the board. What I ended up doing was uh, launching another nonprofit. Uh, it does character education. It's called the Positivity Project. I co-founded it with a fellow veteran, uh, Jeff Bryan, two tours in Iraq, and. 
Yeah, so we we worked on that together from 2015, um, really until uh, the end of 2000. I mean, you know, right now, end of 2019 is when you know I just have transitioned from there. So I've stepped back from executive director of the Positivity Project to be just the chairman of the board, and I've now returned to the executive director role for Team Red, White, and Blue. So, yeah, I've always oh, so you're back to the executive director role. For Team RDB. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I didn't yep. know that. I yeah, just no a idea. few uh, few months ago. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. So got you. So very good. It's awesome. Um you were doing all this while you were going to Michigan too at the same time? So I was there for two years from two thousand and nine to eleven. So after my third deployment, I went to grad school as part of the army. And that's when I started uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. Okay, gotcha, so, gotcha. But gotcha, that's where gotcha, the gotcha. seeds were planted for the Positivity Project, my other nonprofit, which is all about positive psychology. So, what is positive psychology? I saw that. Yeah, so when you think of psychology, typically it's... Uh, it's a study. downer? Yeah, it's a, you, know, <laughs> you, you, you kind of study like... The, you know, uh, Typically, it's a lot of times studying like what's wrong with people, right? What's wrong with groups, what's wrong with you know humanity. And like it's important to do that, right? To look at you know, a lot of the evils. Learn and from your mistakes. and Totally. Yeah. Positive psychology says that's very important to do, but we also need to study what goes right. We need to study resilience and growth. We need to be able to examine in people and help them to understand, like, what is it that they did in response to adversity or trauma that allowed them to grow or to heal, yeah. right? So, yeah, so it's essentially the scientific study of what goes right in life and how to live a flourishing life. And so, you know, that's why I studied in grad school for those two years and it transformed my life because ever since then, everything that I've sort of looked at, you know, in my life is kind of been through that lens of positive psychology. So more of like a behavioral uh, study? Yeah, so it's part of it's about behavior, part of it's about mindset, part of it's about character. Uh, it really kind of looks at, honestly, the role that people and relationships play in life. So when we think about other people, we often think about like the friction we have with other people. Sure. Uh, like the, I've never met someone who's got, you know, a family that, that doesn't have, you know, some, some trauma, some drama, you know, and some challenges, right? We think about our friendships, even if like it's a best friend that you've had for many, many years, there's been points when he or she really bothered you. Sure. Um, and, and certainly of course people that we work with, that we volunteer with, right? So there's always going to be some sort of friction, you know, human to human friction, like in humanity. But, um, it's really bigger than that. You know, um, what we know is that ironically that those relationships and how we interact with the people that we, that we are related to, that we love, that we work with, that we volunteer with, that's actually the number one predictor of life satisfaction. And so ironically, if, if you want to be happier, lean into your relationships. It's not fun sometimes, right? There's a lot of times you have to have hard conversations or, you know, uh, when you might not even enjoy spending the time with each other. But when you look back on it, it was this formative time. So think about the power of like, you think about your military service, right? Where you're going through, like, let's say you're on a wrong, long ruck march, you know, you're like, dude, I don't want to go do, right, do that. Right. But you got blisters and your back is sore and like all that stuff. But, but how do you look back on it with a ton of pride, right? Those challenging times are actually formative. And it formed the tightest relationships that you've ever had. Absolutely. Right. And so it's this whole idea of leaning into relationships and leaning into, you know, other people, even though, right, it's not easy to do, even though it might be very uncomfortable or unenjoyable in the moment, but those are the building blocks of a great life. And so that's what positive psychology spends a lot of time really analyzing. Very good. Very good. Um, How did you relay this study into this nonprofit? 
a positive positivity project. What does the positivity project do? Yeah. So, so, uh, we partner with schools and we have a, essentially a character education strategy, 15 minutes per day. It's a 32 week strategy starting in September, going to May. And we basically, you know, empower teachers to be able to teach these daily 10 to 15 minute lessons to their students about things like integrity, gratitude, fairness, humility, um, self-control, creativity, enthusiasm, right? These are, there's 24 different characteristics, 24 different aspects of character. And we basically empower teachers to be able to teach their students what these strengths are with the focus on building good relationships. So it's not integrity for the sake of integrity or humor or gratitude for the sake of that. It's really about how do you see these in yourselves and how do you see them in other people? Um, and positive psychology, by the way, is, is baked into team red, white, and blue. You know, um, our, our whole point when we looked at the enriched uh, life scale, like I talked about before health, people, purpose, yeah. you know, that people aspect, those relationships is a big part of it. And so, you know, again, positive psychology research keeps pointing us back to the quality of your relationships with family and friends and coworkers and teammates, neighbors, et cetera, is the number one predictor of life satisfaction. So at team red, white, and blue, we're not just a, Oh, Hey, go out there and exercise on your own all the time. It's going to make you, you know, happier or healthier. It will. But really, it's about eventually how do you connect with other people? How do you exercise with other people? Go to a Spartan race or a marathon with somebody else or with other people, especially other veterans. That's where the real enrichment comes from. Interesting. I'm always interested in new studies that other people that I've never heard of. So that's, that's, that's just awesome to hear. Um, you know, also when I was reading in your bio, you were also during your first stint as chairing TMRWB. And while you were starting out the Positivity Project, you found time to write a book. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I co-authored uh, a book. Lead, yeah. lead yourself first. Yep. What was the purpose behind the book? So it started out, that process started out in 2010. So it turned out that was a pretty busy year for me. That's when I started. Sounds like it. Uh, grad school. <laughs> so I became a dad for the first time, started Team Red, White, and Blue. And I met an author or a judge, a federal judge up in Ann Arbor. Uh, and we started working together on a book, a collaboration effort that would last us about six years. Uh, wow. You know, so it was a, quite the journey and perseverance. Uh, so for six years. Oh, yeah. Solid commitment. Absolutely. And while I was there in Michigan, it was a lot easier. But then I went to West Point and he stayed in Michigan. And so we had to kind of work through like the distance of figuring out how we were going to interview people and how we were going to write the book. But yeah, it, it was a journey that began while I was in graduate school. And, and then came out in 2017. It's, it's about a year long process from the time you turn in the manuscript after all the editing is done and all that back and forth until it actually publishes. Interesting. So, so yeah, so, I mean, it, the book is called, you know, lead yourself first, inspiring leadership through solitude. And the point is pretty simple that in today's hyper-connected world where there's, you know, endless access to information, right? between social media and the internet and talking to people. And right, there's just so many, you can check at any time, the weather and your bank accounts. And right, there's just all this information that can just overwhelm you that it's really important to step back from that noise from time to time and to get inside your own head yeah. and be clear that the path you're on is the right one. To be clear that the decisions you're making are the ones that you really want to make. And so, you know, we think about just all of the noise in the world today, right? You know, the internet, social media, but also TV, video games. It's, it's all there. And it just can, content, just content, content, content. It can totally crowd out that space in your, in your head. And what we did is we found by researching a lot of historical figures. Oh, by the way, a lot of them, uh, military, right. Um, you know, and then also interviewing contemporary leaders, 
also a fair amount, fair number of them veterans or, or active duty that like, this is a pretty powerful concept, you know, as we kept digging in and trying to understand more, like what's the power of solitude. Right. And one of the things is that we said in solitude is that, Hey, this is not like Henry David throw and go out, you know, in the woods for like weeks at a time and just sort of go off the grid. Um, we define solitude as the mind isolated from the input from other minds. Okay. And so to be clear, so you can be on top of Mount Rainier, but if you're ripping through your Instagram feed, that's not, you're not disconnected. Correct. Or if you're in a coffee shop right here and there's people buzzing all around you, but you are like journaling or you're sort of thinking or you're whiteboarding and you're, you know, with kind of like just scratching down on paper, like out your ideas, that's you like inside your own head without the, without the input from other minds. Right. Said another way, reading a book, not solitude, putting it down, thinking about what did that just teach me or what should I take away from that chapter? That is solitude. You know, and I think you might have already kind of answered this. Is there a difference between solitude and isolation yeah. in your mind? Yeah. So it's, a, so it's a great question. So when we hear the word solitude or a derivative term of it, the first thing that most people think about is solitary confinement, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so they often think about <laughs> POW, yeah. you know? Yeah. So we know. Yeah that solitude taken too far or isolation can be a bad thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so really solitude is the voluntary decision to be able to put down the devices, to get away from it, to be able to get inside your own mind, not isolation, which might be, you know, what often leads to loneliness. So the difference between solitude and loneliness is that solitude is kind of the richness of self. You choose to step back from the noise, whereas loneliness is this feeling of, I want to be connected to other people but I don't feel that I am or that I can be right. Um, and that often is tied, you know, tightly together with isolation. So yeah. So solitude really is this conscious decision of, I'm going to put the phone down. I'm going to, you know, turn off my phone. Like what, there's all these various things you can do, but a lot of it does go back to your phone and I'm going to find a way to just step back. And it, it can be through meditation, through prayer, through journaling and reflection. It can be walking the dog, uh, on your own without your phone in your hand. But that's the thing we have become, so addicted to the phones because there's so many things, right? It's our camera, it's our video camera, it's our access to our bank account, the weather, the internet, social media, it's streaming, vi- Netflix. You can do so many things in that one little, you know, computer. The one little screen, yeah. Right there, you know, and look, it has made our lives a lot more convenient in many ways, but the irony is that it's also made our lives a lot more stressful and more chaotic because it's so much harder to be present in the moment with people. Yeah. It's so much harder to focus and to think and to reflect. And like a contemplative, reflective life is, you know, it's important to be able to contemplate and reflect and it's never been more difficult to do that. Right. So that's the, some of the driving themes of the book is it really, it tries to inspire and motivate the reader to make solitude a priority in his or her life by telling and, and stringing these stories together, both historical figures like General Eisenhower and Martin Luther King Jr. and Pope John Paul II, General Grant, and then all these other leaders that you've never heard of, contemporary leaders that you know, they're much more accessible, but like, like that's the whole idea is to string these stories together over the course of 200 pages to motivate people to say, you know what, this is a, this has got to become a priority for me because I just read all those stories and like, I want to have that level of inspiration in my own life. Find a common thread between them all and, and, and and try to inspire others. That's awesome. Um, you talk about the phone and and contemporary society and, uh, the difficulty to disconnect. Um, as society becomes more technologically advanced, do you see this as a as a problem for the future? As as it, get, as it would be getting harder and harder to actually 
do that? Yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I, know I am a raging optimist, so I would like and do believe that that there are better times ahead. I think that sure we can learn about balance. Like I call it when I give talks, presentations, I call it the technology tsunami um, that kind of overtook us between like that 2005 and 2015 window. Yeah. Um, and it really was around mobile, right? Because before mobile and the smartphones, which became, have become a lot cheaper and a lot better and apps getting a lot better and Wi-Fi getting a lot more frequent and uh, access to data becoming unlimited, right? So those, those four things, right, that, that took place sort of in succession over that period of time. Before that, you had the only way you could really access a website or look at the weather or your bank account or whatever, you know, was you had to go and do it online, right? And, and even go, be, go sit at a computer. Right. And yeah. even if it was after, you know, dial up, you know, an AOL and all, all that kind of stuff, even then, like it was still relatively inconvenient to go do that. So you had to like be intentional with when you went to go use the computer. Sure. And now today you'd never have to be intentional because it's always with you. And so I think that's been, you know, a big part of, you know, why we've seen such a, and I kind of call it like, it's almost like eating at a, uh, all you can eat buffet, right? You overeat because you paid for it and you're like, I'm going to go get more. I'm going to go get more. Do you remember back in the days? Like when you would, uh, you got like 100 anytime minutes, you know, and, and, <laughs> and then like if you, if you, and then you see people talk, I did all my talking after nine o'clock at night and on the weekends. Yeah. People, people adjust fire. Right. You know, yeah. same thing with data. Like you went, you got like 50 text messages per month. And if you went over that, then you had to pay like a quarter a text message, right? And so it's this move towards unlimited that has now made it that it's just at our hands all the time, and now we overeat. Hmm. Very good. So it took you six years to write this book. For any transitioning veterans out there that are looking to be writers, yeah. What advice do you got for them? Perseverance is the first one. You know, there's no way you can spin something out in you know like a really short period of time uh, it takes time for the thoughts and the ideas to percolate and then it takes time to execute you know you can and there's a lot more frequent obviously in the world today to self-publish so you know we went and really worked hard to find a you know a good publisher a good agent all that kind of stuff um bloomsbury press the best known for harry potter series but gotcha uh, but yeah they you know i learned throughout that whole process definitely how much perseverance you have to have because it is hard it is really hard um, to be able to get the words right, to get the flow of everything right, to get the structure right. Um, but it's an awesome challenge for everybody. I kind of say two things, you know, one, you can always kind of write like a memoir, right? right? Not for the purpose of anybody else, but for the purpose of kind of capturing your story that your kids or grandkids can read one day. Um, you know, yeah, I guess they can in theory go to your Facebook page or something like that and kind of like learn about, you know, grandpa or something. <laughs> Bunch like of that. emojis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They could do that someday, you know, but bottom line is like it's a great opportunity to practice and get your story down and then see what parts of your story might resonate and go, ooh, you know, I'd like to maybe explore, you know, whatever, a, a story off of that or maybe a nonfiction or a fiction story off of this, you know, this part of my life or this chapter or this season of my life. So, um, but yeah, the biggest thing I just would say is just begin work and putting the words down and kind of getting it together, but getting the, the order, the flow, the structure, all that is a very time consuming process. And you just got to kind of roll your sleeves up and start to do it. Cause it's, it's not going to happen just by sheer willpower. It does take a lot of reps and then also just again, getting good mentorship from other people who've done this before. Mike, what's one thing you learn in service that you apply to what you do today? If you were to pick one thing, Oof. you know, there's many yeah. things I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, as an, as a former intelligence officer, the big thing that I probably learned the most of in my time in the military goes back to 
one of your jobs as an intel officer is I remember my commander saying like, no one cares. Tell me what happened. I, I need to know what's going to happen next, right? Predictive analysis. Yeah. And I think that's really important as you think about the future and like specifically what I do right now with Team Red, White, and Blue as the board chair for the Positivity Project, doing leadership work. Um, you know, also started a, a private independent Catholic high school down outside Fort Bragg called Father Vincent Capadano High School, named after a Navy chaplain who served uh, in the yep, Marine Corps. Yep, yeah, I've heard of him. So a Medal of Honor recipient, uh, unbelievable, right? But all these things are at their core, they're predictive in nature. Hold on, wait. You you said you founded a school as I, well. I co- yeah, I'm one of the founders along with some <laughs> some folks from the Fort Bragg community. Uh, all kinds of so, stuff there, yeah. Mike. All kinds of stuff. Yeah, I founded it two and a half years ago. So it's uh, it's going. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about it later. But it's it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Um, our model is really centered around service, what we call skill, service, character, and leadership. So it's really the belief that those things are just as important to the future as is academics and knowledge. Um, but all these things are really run to answer your question directly, predictive analysis. That's to say that really thinking more about the future and then how do you translate that vision from the future into something right now Tangible. is a, totally, that's yeah. a skill set that the military taught me, um, you know, in a major way that I used right now every, every day. This is Catholic school. It is. Gotcha. Yes. It's very, very small. Uh, I got like 13 kids right now, but, uh, some of them are the children of, you know, active duty, military, special forces. Um, and yeah, it's pretty awesome to just see how, uh, and to interact with teenagers today, right. They're very different than teenagers were, you know, uh, just 10, 15 years ago. Tell me about it. Uh, I've gotten to the point now where I just, you know, I, I think me and my wife, we were watching, uh, I don't know how we got on VH1 or, or MTV or whatever. And we were just looking there like, oh, you know, summer bash, you know, 2020 with X, Y, and Z. And we we're like, we know nobody. <laughs> Absolutely nobody. No, you're right. Uh, teenagers today, you know, and you never thought it would happen. You yeah. never thought you'd be become your parents where you're like, yeah. I can't identify. I will always identify because no, you're not. Yeah. This is a totally different world. Yeah. Well, I think the big, the big piece on it specifically, because yes, there's always been changes throughout history, right? I was just talking about this over lunch today, but there's always been changes, you know, uh, the, the radio, the TV, the printing press, like all these things are, ah. but, <laughs> but none of them consumed our teenagers, like our, or all of us, but especially our children and teenagers, their time and what they think as much as the world today. Yeah. So now if this was 10 years ago, when you had the access to the internet from a laptop or a computer, different story, but it's, you know, this is the first generation. You got to think about it. They don't need adults for access to anything. They, they got a question, they go to YouTube and find it. They want to learn how to change the oil in their car. Or they want to, they want to get a question. And they, hey, I wonder what it's like to go to Disney world. Like anything they can go to YouTube or go to the internet and find a video or find articles that basically give them the information that they want. Right. And so if you think about it, just from that standpoint alone, children always kind of teenagers needed adults to be able to ask questions and get information. Sure. And that that's all at the window now. Right. And this is only about the past five to seven years that we've really Whoa. seen this. You blew my mind, Mike. Yeah. You know, I blew my mind. Uh, didn't think about that. Yeah. And, and so think about this. So, so how much, think about how much quicker they are, you know, to call BS on something before you could, as an adult, you could be like, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, right. Hey, Johnny. And just tell it, you know, something. And then it might take a little while to figure out that you were just kind of pulling his chain. But now it's like, they can go to the internet or some, someone can play. Is that true? Hey, Siri, blah, blah, blah. You know, and you know, before you know it, like, you know, you go, oh, that's not the right answer. You know, and so there's a lot more, I think, skepticism and, you know, doubt that a lot of, you know, teenagers, you know, in our country and in the world have today because they just have access to the exact same amount of information that we do. Yeah. Parents right? need to be on top of their game. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh. it's way increased like the 
the uh, the uh, the amount of responsibility that you have to be on top of your game. Because if not, then eventually you keep on giving wrong information or wrong info. Like you're going to keep on losing credibility. That, there's a lot of emotions with that. With what you just said, there's you know, of course, it's it, there's there's fear of what they might learn, and then there's uh there's okay, they're going to be okay. Interesting, very interesting. Mike, is there anything I might have missed, or something that we didn't discuss that you think it's important to share? Yeah, no, I think, yeah, only thing I guess I would just say is, you know, in terms of, uh, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to Absolutely. share. Uh, you know, I love these conversations that, you know, and based upon what I've done and what I do, right, I've, I can kind of take conversations in a whole bunch of different directions based yeah. upon, you know, leadership work, based upon character education for kids, team red, white, and blue, you know, Army Reserve duty, Army experience. And so it kind of always is always interesting to see where the conversation meanders. But yeah, no, I just would say I'm, I'm really excited about the future for Team Red, White, and Blue. You know, we're about 210,000 mem- registered members right now. Um, we've made a big push for the past couple of years to kind of really bolster our technology so that we can more effectively understand the veterans that join our organization and then try to challenge and inspire them right, in ways that resonate with them. And, you know, when I think about, you know, and just, you know, the VA sent out an email a few uh, weeks ago about, you know, Team RDB is an organization putting on lots of great local events. And I think we had like 1,200 veterans download the app and install it and join the organization like within 24 hours. That's awesome to see that impact. Yeah. I mean, so now like, hey, now now it's on us to be able to convert them into active members, right? Yeah. Um, and, and how we share with them all that we have going on and like why it's so important for them, not just for themselves, but also for the veteran community writ large to get active. Right. Um, to be active. And, and I kind of say this, that you know, part of our, our mission here is to help veterans rediscover the power of physical activity in their lives. Right. And so we all know, that, you know, because of the, the runner's high, the endorphins, those kinds of things, like we know how good it can feel when a run is over. Maybe not when you're doing it. Right. But when it's well, over, when you're over. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what I mean, so you don't do the run to feel good during it. You do it to draw the benefits, you know, for the rest of the day. And so that's our you know, kind of vision here for the future is like, we know there's almost 18 million veterans or so in the country. And, um, you know, we want to get as many of them as possible active in team red, white, and blue, as many of them moving, connecting with other veterans, you know, through that physical activity, forming stronger relationships because of it. And then through that driving this, this sense of purpose, right. And they put that team RDB Jersey on, they feel, you know, a little bit like a badass, like, dude, like, yeah, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something hard today, right? And so that's really where, as an organization, you know, we're moving. And, and I just appreciate the chance to be able to share that with our listeners. And, you know, if you're a veteran, go to that store and download the app and, and, and join us. Or if you know a veteran or you know other veterans, let them know about it. And uh, we'd love to have you become a part of the Eagle Nation. Out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go, go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I want to thank Mike for coming up to visit with us for that interview shortly before the COVID-19 wiped out any chance of meeting face-to-face. It was a pleasure. It was a great interview. We greatly appreciate it. For more information on Mike's work or on Team RWB, 
Visit teamrwb.org, and they also have a podcast. It's called Eagle Nation. This week, our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week comes by way of the Statesville Record and Landmark, and it's also a personal one. He is Navy veteran Art Rogers. Art was born in Jamaica, a, a tiny city in Queens, borough of New York, on May 30th, 1926. Early on in life, Rogers was a young photographer and worked with some of the best fashion photographers in the world. However, Art enlisted in the Navy and after two years was asked to serve on the Manhattan Project, taking photos of atomic and hydrogen bombs. After he got out of the Navy, he stayed on with the Manhattan Project as a federal employee. I knew Art. As a former combat cameraman, I gravitated to him and his stories of photographing atomic bombs from miles away with little or no PPE. Completely astounded me. You could always find him at Richard's Coffee Shop in Mooresville, North Carolina. He was a fixture there. Richard's Coffee Shop is a little local nonprofit veteran coffee shop. There are pieces of history all throughout it. There's live bluegrass on Saturdays provided by any veterans who want to play. And as I sat there listening to that music, I would listen to art. And he would talk about things like taking a photograph of one of these bombs out in Tahiti and waiting for the blast wave to knock him over minutes later as he was still taking photographs of the atomic plume. I did interview him for this podcast, and he brought in some remarkable photos and photos of him in these environments. However, as much as Art talked, at 93, it wasn't always in a straight line, and I found it to be one of the most difficult edits of my career. Um, I recently returned to it over the weekend, and I will finish it. Art sadly died on April 28th in his fight with coronavirus. A scientific man till the end, he tried to help doctors as much as he could. Uh, he told his daughter-in-law, Brenda, Bren, I'm either going to beat this or I'm going to help find the cure. We honor his service. That's it for this week's Born the Battle episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just email us at podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this episode, hit the subscribe button, even on the player there in the blog. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app, not a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I am reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening. May the 4th be with you, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.